I invite you all to stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Meshibbethet, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you how you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? that you should notice a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat. At my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Bruce. I'm sorry that you're getting so much from me today. But uh, as we continue in our Life of David series, we're looking at this beautiful passage from 2 Samuel 9, which also has some very difficult names in it. So well done, Bruce. (laughs) Let me pray real quick. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to open up your word and to sit with you in it and to listen to your voice. And I pray that as we do this together today, that we will hear you speak, each of us, just as we need to hear you this morning. I thank you for your love for us your faithfulness to us. And as we humble ourselves before you and open up your word, Lord, I pray that we would come closer to you. And as we do that, we trust you will draw closer to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are at a point in the story of David's life where he has returned to Jerusalem as king. 
and has brought the ark of God with him. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. He has now destroyed the house of Saul, or nearly all of it. He has subdued the Philistines, and he has brought peace to Israel for the first time in years. Finally, Israel is largely at peace. The warfare is over. The opening chapters of 2 Samuel are, in fact, incredibly violent. David has spilled a lot of blood to secure his kingdom. And he has been, it's, there are only a few short chapters, but they represent about a decade of time. David has been at war for probably over a decade since the death of Saul to finally secure his crown. And he's heard now from the prophet Nathan, which we heard last week, about God's intention to secure David's throne forever. So this isn't now just about David's moment in history. This is about something God is doing throughout all of human history that God is going to secure David's throne forever, which, of course, we understand as a promise about Jesus, the, the Messiah, the coming of Christ. But now, after many years of warfare and toil and bloodshed, David has some time to stop and think, to rest and think and reflect on his life. And so perhaps in a quiet moment, he remembers his friend Jonathan, who has died, and the fact that Jonathan risked his life on many occasions to keep David alive and to help David secure the throne, even though it cost him greatly. And that David would not actually be where he is had it not been for Jonathan's faithfulness. David would not be the king of Israel had it not been for Jonathan. And that David himself had also made a promise to Jonathan that he now intends to keep. So David asks, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And friends, it is here in this moment that I think we see David at his very, very best. I think we see David at his very best in this moment. And for me, this scene actually even pushes his defeat of Goliath into second place in terms of the great stories of David's life. I mean, his defeat of Goliath in, in 1 Samuel is, of course, incredible. You know, it, 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 it's easily David's most well-known moment. Everyone knows about David and Goliath. The raw courage and faith that David demonstrates in that moment is breathtaking. And he's just a kid. It's breathtaking. Everyone knows the story, but hardly anyone knows this story. But I think this story eclipses the David and Goliath moment. And here we don't see David's skill in battle what we have here is David engaging in an act of kindness. And it's important to point out that when we talk about kindness here, this word kindness is not simply a matter of David being nice. This is not David being nice. It goes much deeper than that. And as we've heard through this series, David is described as a man after God's own heart. He's described a man after God's own heart. And that means David loved God, yes, and he pursued God, yes, but it also means that when David is at his best, when we see David acting at his best, we are being given a glimpse into the heart of God. We are seeing the character of God displayed through David's actions. So what is God like? What is God like? And in this moment of all of David's life, I think we see God most Clearly, we see the character of God most clearly.
clearly in this moment. Now, next week, we'll see David at his very worst. Uh, But for now, let's just enjoy this moment. (laughs) Now, in order to frame this passage, we need to go back to that moment when David and Saul's son, Jonathan, made a covenant with one another, a covenant of enduring friendship and love. And this word covenant is essential to today's passage. It's not actually in the reading, or it should be, but it's not in the reading. In fact, David mentions this word, covenant, three times. In verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 7, but you probably didn't see it because the NIV translates it as kindness, but it's actually the word covenant. Uh, and this, so kindness is a very weak translation, in fact, of one of the most important words in the Bible, one of the most important Hebrew words in the Bible. Does anyone know what it is? Any Hebrew scholars in the house? It's the word chesed. Now, you've got to kind of say it with the back of your throat. Chesed. Now, that's why they translate it as kindness, because no one can say that, right? But chesed is a hard word to say, and it's a hard word to describe. But it's sometimes translated in the scriptures as loving kindness. You see this word loving, or this phrase, loving kindness, or steadfast love, or covenant love. It's all the same root word, the Hebrew word chesed. And what is being expressed here is the covenant love, the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love of the Lord. What does that mean? Let me illustrate it like this. We live in a market-driven consumer culture, which is mostly driven by desire, fueled by desire. Um, In a consumer retail relationship, right, the the relationship is transactional. I'll be in a relationship with you and pay you a fair price for good merchandise, but if the merchandise isn't any good or the price is no good, which is pretty much everywhere now, I will break the relationship and go to a retailer who will meet my needs, who I prefer over you. In other words, you're willing to sacrifice the relationship in a retail sense, break off the relationship at a whim in order to satisfy your needs or wants or desires. But a covenant relationship is entirely different. In a covenant, you make a public promise to to sustain the relationship despite what it might cost you. Uh, In other words, you put the relationship first and the promises that you have made first above your needs or preferences or desires or wants. You serve that relationship and you remain committed to that relationship even when it's not meeting your needs or if the desire fades or if things are tough. That's what we commit to in a marriage when we say these words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. In other words, in all the seasons of life, I will be faithful to my promise. I will keep my word. A marriage is a covenant relationship. One of the best examples of a covenant relationship that we have, it's not a transactional relationship. It's not a retail relationship. And that's why scripture continually uses marriage as probably the primary metaphor for understanding the covenant, covenant love and covenant faithfulness of God. This is a covenant. A, this, sorry, this is covenant love, steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And it's what God is like. God is chesed. It's so essential to understanding God because um, it's the best possible description of who God is. He is Hesed. And one of, the, one of our kids' Bibles actually puts it like this. It is God's eternally, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is Hesed. 
And of course, what we like to say in our culture is that love is love, but not all love is love. Most of the time, it's just desire. And although increasingly in our culture, we are treating what should be covenant relationships as transactional relationships, the point is, from a biblical point of view, the only love that can properly be called love in the end is this kind of love, chesed love. That's how Scripture defines love, because that is what God is like, and God is love. Now remember, David and Jonathan had made this promise of chesed, love, to one another years ago when they were still barely teenagers. In 1 Samuel 18, we read that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. What was the nature of that covenant? That Jonathan, who was the heir to the throne, remember, said he would ensure that David became king instead of him, in as much as it was in his power to do so. So even though Jonathan is next in line to the throne, he gave up that promise. He put his relationship with David ahead of his own desires, ahead of his own preferences, for David's sake. And Jonathan, in return, asked David to swear something, that when he became king, he would show what? Kindness, chesed to Jonathan's family, that he wouldn't wipe them all out, but he would, uh, he would show kindness to any remaining descendants of Saul, for whose sake? For Jonathan's sake, because Jonathan had been faithful to his promise to David, and even though Jonathan is now dead in the story, David intends to honour his promise to him. And what's interesting to me is that no one is looking to David to do this, right? Least of all Mephibosheth. And it's not at all in David's advantage to do this. In fact, he's taking quite a risk, which I'll explain in just a minute. But it struck me here that even after such a long, long period of time, we're talking maybe 20 years since they made this promise to one another, David and Jonathan. It's been about 20 years. It could have been easy for David to go, oh, well, that's just ancient history. You know, I made that promise all those years ago. It doesn't mean anything now. Jonathan's dead. Why should I bother keeping that promise? Why bother? Well, here is one of the first ways in which we see the meaning of chesed, and it's on the screen, it is this, that the covenant love of God, the love of God for you is not and never will be eroded by the passage of time. God will love you and will be faithful to you because he is Chesed, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of turning in him. If he has promised to love you and to show you mercy and kindness, he has promised to do it on the honour of his own name forever, and he will not break his promise. That is a promise that you can build your life on. God does not change his mind and he has chosen to love you in Christ Jesus and that will not erode no matter what happens over the passing of time. God will remain steadfast and faithful in his covenant love forever. And so David says, there must be somebody I can show this kindness to. And the word eventually gets to Ziba, an old servant of King Saul, and Ziba is able to point David in the right direction and he says to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in his feet. In other words, he's useless. Why would you want to show any kindness to him? And two times we're told, 
We're reminded of the fact that Mephibosheth is crippled in his feet. That becomes really important in this story. But you'll notice in the, in, that in the final statement in this chapter, we see this as well. The last words in the chapter, he's crippled in his feet, he's lame in his feet. In other words, there's nothing about uh, Mephibosheth that should endear him to David. There is something then about the helplessness, about the situation that Mephibosheth is in that speaks then to David's kindness and compassion, that speaks to the nature of God's chesed. We know only a little bit about Mephibosheth's background. We see something from 2 Samuel 4. It's on the screen where we read that Jonathan had a son. Sorry, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son. He was five years old when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So this is when Jonathan and Saul have died in battle. His nurse picked him up and fled, so there's a panic. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. That's really all we know about him, other than that he's Jonathan's son. By this time in chapter 9, however, he's now a young man. And David wants to know, verse 4, well, where is he? And Ziba says to him, well, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. It's interesting. No one knows where this is. It's a nowhere place. It's a nothing place. It's, 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 it's irrelevant to David, who sits on his throne in Jerusalem. So this effectively tells us that Mephibosheth is not doing so well. He's dependent on the care of others. He has nothing. I mean, he was once the heir to the throne, and now he's been reduced to nothing, depending on the mercy of other people. He's basically homeless. He can't work because he's a cripple. This guy has nothing. He's been reduced to about as low as you can get. And you know, when you're the king, I think you'd probably want to make sure that you surround yourself with the best kind of people, right? The impressive people. You'd want to make sure that your entourage is full of the beautiful and accomplished and talented and meaningful people. I mean, King Charles probably doesn't host homeless people in Buckingham Palace. He surrounds himself with the best people. That would be standard fare. That's what kings do. They don't invite homeless people to live in their palaces. So what kind of king is it who's going to have someone like Mephibosheth, a cripple, in his entourage? A person who can't take care of themselves, a loser, literally. I mean, he's lost everything, right? And worse, he's the grandson of his enemy. So by rights, he should be David's enemy as well. What kind of king would hang out with someone like this? Does Mephibosheth have anything impressive to offer David? No, he has nothing to offer David. And that is why, friends, the fact that Mephibosheth has nothing of value to offer David is why David is a man after God's own heart. For precisely this reason, this moment is about the loving kindness of God presented so beautifully in this scene, but even here it's out of focus, for of course we know that it only comes truly into focus in Christ, the true King of Kings, the son of David promised in 2 Samuel 7, who was always being accused by the religious leaders of hanging out with the Mephibosheths of this world, the wrong kind of people, the lepers, the sinners, the prostitutes, the lame, the blind, the unclean. These were the kinds of people in the entourage of Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because that's the heart of God. And what Mephibosheth would have anticipated when he was brought before King David, we can only imagine. Up to this point, David has killed 
all the rest of the house of Saul, as was usual and expected in those days. You know, like in the ancient world during a regime change, thank God we don't live in that kind of scenario anymore, the name of the game was to purge your enemies. You got rid of them. To ensure, partly, that there'd be no possibility of a future rebellion against you, got rid of all of the people from the previous king, and that there'd be no one who would be a rallying point for those who preferred the old king. If you got rid of them all, well, there's no one to go back to. Perhaps Mephibosheth thought that he was gonna be next. He's being brought before King David, and this is judgment day. He's gonna lose his head. So no wonder he falls at, his, uh, at the feet of David on his face and pays homage to him. But what does David say to Mephibosheth? He says, Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Where have we heard that before, friends? Where have we heard that before? Do you remember on the night that Jesus was born, the angels appeared to the shepherds, the wrong kinds of people, and said, fear not, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people, for unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. And here David in the city of David brings Mephibosheth before him and says, I don't want you to be afraid of me, Mephibosheth. You don't need to be afraid because, and verse seven is surely the heart of this whole passage. David said to Mephibosheth, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. In other words, what you're going to be able to enjoy as a result of my kindness to you is not on account of anything in you. What you're going to enjoy on account of my kindness to you is not the result of anything in you. It's on account of a promise that I made a very long time ago. So this is my second point. The blessings that we enjoy in Christ are not on account of anything in us. We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, but they are on account of the promises that God has made a very, 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 very long time ago. As Ephesians 1 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, for he chose us in him. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, that is chesed, or in the Greek, agape. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of what you have earned from God. No, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon you. Can we all say that? That he lavished upon us. Let's do it one more time. That he lavished upon us. Lavished it. Didn't just dole out a little bit if you've been good. Little cookie, little reward, little lolly, little piece of candy. Been a good boy today, here you go. No, it's he lavished his grace on us, a grace that we did not deserve and we could not have possibly earned. As David says to Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I am going to show you the kindness of God because of the covenant I shared with your father. And that is just a mere shadow of what Christ has promised to us, isn't it? And, I, and what does David say he's gonna do? I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. This is unbelievable, this is astonishing. Mephibosheth has been reduced to nothing. 
And in a moment, at the word of the king, he is suddenly now a very, very rich man. Probably second only to David himself. Just like that, at the word of the king. And even more, what does David say next? Not only will you get what has been taken from your family back, not only will I restore to you what has been stolen, you will eat at my table, always. You will eat at my table, always. Always you will eat at my table. And this form of Fibosheth is an honor and a blessing beyond what he could ever possibly imagine. And he's, he's astonished by it, right? He doesn't, so he doesn't say, oh yeah, well finally, someone's giving me back what's rightfully mine. I mean, come on. No, he's astonished by this. And he says, what sense does this make? This makes no sense. Why would you do this? Why would you do this for a dead dog like me? Why would you do this for a nobody like me, for a has-been like me, for a failure like me? Why would you do this? I'm at the bottom of the pile here, David. Who am I that you would care for me? I love what one commentator said about this. The reason some of us has never, have never really come to trust in Christ is because we've never really faced the fact that we are by our very nature, all of us, at the bottom of the pile. That we are lame, that we are sinful, that we are crippled, and that we are diseased. No, from the moment we're born, certainly in the West, most of us are told how special and how unique we are, how beautiful we are, how accomplished we are, how we can do anything we want if we just set our mind to it. If you dream it, you can do it. Like this is the narrative that we hear from Disney movies from pretty much the moment we're able to watch television, that we're the good people. We're the good people. Those are the bad people. We're the good ones, right? We're the ones who deserve something good. And that's why we're blessed, it's obvious. So the message we hear is God likes nice people. If you're a nice person, if you're a good person, then God will like you and he'll look after you, take care of you. God will help you. Friends, we have to kill that thinking dead, as dead as we can possibly make it. The reverse is the case. Mephibosheth is exactly right. His, his reaction to the covenant love of God. My God, I don't deserve this. Why should you have any concern for a dead dog like me? You see, what Mephibosheth expected, he didn't receive, and what he received, he didn't deserve. That is amazing grace. My friends, that is unfailing love. That is chesed. That is the love of God. Next slide. The final thing we see here, the covenant love of God means that we have received what we don't deserve and what we could never possibly earn. And the same is true for all of us in Christ Jesus. We have received what we don't deserve and, we have, uh, and, and what we could never possibly earn, any of us. It's not based on our goodness. It's not based on our worth. It's not based on our hard work or our accomplishments. It's based on one thing and one thing only. It is based on the covenant love of God. That is your only plea, friends. 
Verse 11, Mephibosheth then ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Look at what's happened here. David's found him, he's summoned him, he's treated him kindly, he's provided for his needs, he's given him a seat at his table, and now he's treating him like one of his own sons. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Have we heard this kind of story before? That's why I say to you that this is David at his very best because here we see the heart of God. Here we see what uh, will come to us in Christ Jesus, the fulfilment of what we've experienced in Christ as Jesus prayed in John 17, one of my favourite prayers in the Bible, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And then 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me and I have loved them even as you loved me. I love what Tim Keller says about this. It's not kind of like, it's not sort of sometimes, even as. Even as. What does that mean? In the same way as. You have loved them, all of you, even as the Father loved Jesus, the Son. Can you just, I mean, that's a little seed thought that if you really let get in there will just blow your mind apart. You are loved by the Father in the same way that the Father loves the Son. You are loved by the Father in the same way even as the Father loves the Son. Will the father ever abandon the son? Will the father ever walk away from the son? Will the father ever say, this is not my son? If you are loved in the same way as the father, those promises are yours as well for everything we have in Christ Jesus is yes and amen to the glory of God the father. So this picture, 2 Samuel 9, as glorious as it is, is only like a blurry grayscale of what we've now seen in like 4K definition in Christ Jesus. And as we read at the beginning of this service, Isaiah 35, 150 years after David, Isaiah begins to prophesy that there's going to come a day when, when the new king of David arrives. And when he comes, what will happen? The eyes of the blind will be opened the lame will leap like the deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And 600 years before Jesus, the people read this. They wondered, what on earth does this mean? And then suddenly, the time is fulfilled. And on the very first day that Jesus begins his public ministry, he stands up in the synagogue. He reads from Isaiah and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to those who are the outsiders, the outcasts, the ones who have nothing. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to declare to everyone who will listen that this is the day of the Lord's favour. Are you with me? And what happens? The lame walk. And the blind see. And the mute begin to sing for joy. Because Jesus has fulfilled all that David's kingdom 
and kingship points toward. And if you just stand back for a moment, I'm going to finish with this. If you just stand back for a moment and think about this story, what do we see happening? Well, it wasn't Mephibosheth who went looking for David, was it? It wasn't Mephibosheth who went looking for David. It was David who went looking for Mephibosheth. And when one day someone stands at his door and knocks and says, "Uh, Mephibosheth, the king would like to see you. And Mephibosheth had to change his pants because he thought, this is it, I'm done. No, the opposite is the truth. David went looking for Mephibosheth, knocked on his door and invited him to come home. Come sit at my table. Come be one of my children. I'll provide everything you need. This is the kingdom of God. And as we read in Romans 5, it's on the screen. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, not the righteous. Didn't Jesus say, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners? I didn't come to heal the healthy, but to heal the sick. It's not the sick, sorry, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us while we were still sinners and while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? In other words, that's saying God was faithful then, he's faithful now, and he'll be faithful to the end. Are you with me? And so friends, Revelation chapter, five, uh, Revelation chapter three, and the band's gonna come on up. We hear these beautiful, beautiful words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them and I will eat with them. I'll invite them to my table. I will call you my son, I will make you my family, and I'll remember your sins no more. Friends, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of chesed. It's a kingdom of covenant love. A love that you could never earn, that you don't deserve, yet is yours in Christ Jesus. All we can say is what Paul says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. I invite you to stand with me and we're gonna sing our final song, but let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage, for this promise, and for the power that it brings into our lives. That it enables us to both be honest with you and say, yeah, Lord, I need your help. I'm a dead dog. I'm helpless. But also then to look at the love of the Father expressed to us in Christ Jesus and say, thanks be to God that he has found me. He has called me. 
He's invited me to share in the blessing of his table and to become his child. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who is searching, looking for you, has lots of questions, is feeling called to come and follow you, Lord Jesus. I pray this morning that they would put their trust in you. All they have to do is open up the door of their heart. Just say, Lord, I welcome you in. Come and fill my life with your presence and love. I need you. I need you. And if there's anyone here this morning that is feeling like they're a failure, don't measure up, struggling, as we were praying earlier, I pray in the name of Jesus that they would know that you intend to be good to them all the days of their life. That they can surrender to you and find in you a father who will always be faithful. Lord, we cry out to you for help today, each one of us, wherever we might be struggling. Thank you, Jesus. We bless you and we say together, amen.